Let's pray. Father, one of my favorite passages in your word is where Paul asked for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. And on three times you say, my grace is sufficient for strength is perfected in weakness. And Father, today, we all come, whether we realize it or not, very weak before you. We cannot muster up the strength to earn our salvation. We cannot muster up the the, the intestinal fortitude to will ourselves to obey you to the point where you'd say, I'm pleased. It's only by the merits of Jesus Christ we're saved. And we thank you, Father, that you have seen fit to bestow upon those who call upon him your grace that we can come together today, believers in Jesus Christ, those who have entrusted ourselves to him, repenting of our sins, and worship you together. And as we come now to the preaching of the word, Father, I ask that you you would bless me to be able to communicate your truth effectively. I ask, Father, that you would give us ears to hear that you might be glorified through how we respond to this. And I ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Beloved, I ask you to take your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 15. We will probably get to Luke next week again. But I wanted to take the opportunity this morning to share with you one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Now, after we read this, you're going to say, if this is one of your favorite passages, you're insane. And I understand. I will understand that. There, there may be some merit to that. Maybe I am insane. But, you know, this is not going to be a heartwarming story. But it's one of my favorites because of the message God conveys through it and how He personally keeps challenging me every time I read this passage with how am I living my life before Him. And that's what I want to try to convey through this text today. And I pray that God will glorify Himself through it. His Word never returns void. And so I trust it won't tonight or this morning either. 1 Samuel 15, all 35 verses, so bear with me. It's going to be worth it, I think. So I know because it's God's work. Um, Here's what it says. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Paul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. 
He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel said to Saul, and Saul uh, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, as is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, 
And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. There is this tension in the Christian life in that while we have been forgiven our sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness because of what Jesus Christ has done, and while you and I today, we are, we are given the immense privilege of glorifying God through obedient faith in His Son. The fact of the matter is, we still do sin. You know, we, we wrestle with sin. Every minute, every day, we wrestle with sin. Um, Paul writes that sin is no longer our master. He says that in Romans 6. And that's true. If, if we're in Christ, sin is no longer our master. But we still regularly give into it. In fact, John writes, 1 John 1, 8, that if anyone says he does not sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, what he's saying there is that if you deny that you ever sin, you don't really know Christ. So we do sin. And that creates great tension against God's will for our lives because we're supposed to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. We're supposed to obey God's Word, that, you know, follow Him. And that brings us to King Saul. You know, he's the first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 15. Samuel was the last judge of Israel. And he had anointed Saul to be king some years prior now. And while Saul was asserting himself, you know, even God says, I made you head over the tribes of Israel. While Saul is the, the political leader, the military leader. Many people still viewed Samuel as the spiritual leader of Israel. And in these first verses of this chapter, we see Samuel come to Saul with a message from God. So, whereas we have the privilege of obeying the Lord, Saul was getting this message from God through Samuel, and whereas it is a privilege for us to obey, Saul's privilege was maybe even greater because he was going to get the chance to actually fulfill biblical prophecy. You know, back in, in Exodus 17, we start to read about this. God was going to use Saul to bring Exodus 17 to pass. Because back then, centuries earlier now, the Israelites had just come out of Egypt. They had just crossed the Red Sea. They hadn't even got to Mount Sinai yet where they would be given the Ten Commandments. But on the way there, they got tired. And in Exodus 17, these people called the Amalekites came in and swooped down and attacked them. And... This is the story we read about where they raised Moses' arms. If you, if that's the story I'm talking about. But God does deliver them from that. And, and after that's over, God says to Moses emphatically, you write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So God very clearly wanted His people to know from then on that in no uncertain terms... Amalek was going to be wiped out. So God was essentially saying now to Saul, a little over a thousand years before Christ, 
Guess what? You get to be the one to do this. You get to be the one to glorify me by making this happen. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be the one I use to bring this about. So what, a, what an honor it is to be able to fulfill God's word. Blot Amalek out. You know, he's given this message from the real king. Blot Amalek out. Make him history. Saul was getting to play the hero in this divine drama of God's wrath against his enemies. Utterly you know, strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now we read that. Hard words. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it. This is a stiff punishment. This is a harsh punishment. But the wrath of God is not easy. You know, the, the, the wrath of God, beloved, is something that it is never to be taken lightly. God was instructing Saul and Israel here to conduct a specific type of warfare known in Hebrew as haram. We see this a couple of times in the Old Testament, but really it was reserved only for those under the strictest judgments of God alone. To wage haram was, was quite frankly, to exterminate the enemy. You know, uh, today when we have international trouble, there's diplomatic sanctions, stuff like that. God doesn't go through the UN. God doesn't issue a, a no-fly zone. God doesn't build a coalition. God doesn't do weapons inspections. And this wasn't like other times either. You know, there are many times, uh, especially in Joshua and other places, where we see that God tells them to go in and you know, even with the Egyptians, what did he say? You're going to plunder the Egyptians. You take, take, take all their stuff once you wipe them out. Not even going to do that here. He told them to annihilate everything, everybody. Extermination. This was the type of destruction that in Deuteronomy 20, it talks about God reserves particularly for the, the, the most evil cities. For, for those who uh, were so evil, God doesn't want their evil to spread one more minute. Israel was to, to wipe Amalek out everything they had so that they would never have to concern themselves with Amalek again. And while the enormity and the severity of the punishment might be hard to hear and might be hard to comprehend, especially in, in our 21st century kind of Western sensibilities, this is a holy God's attitude towards sin. It, while we may be quick way too often to brush sin under the rug, you know, that's not how God views any sin. God is holy. God can't tolerate sin. He's not going to tolerate sin. You know, every single sin that has ever been committed will be punished. Have you ever thought about that? It'll either be punished in you or to be punished in Christ. But it will be punished. And Saul was getting the part to play to wipe this out completely. He was getting a word from God's prophet. He was going to be God's instrument to do it. And things started off well. We read the people were ready. God, uh, Saul gathered 210,000 soldiers for battle. No small troop. And this was a significant 
uh, battle that was going to take place. And so he went and he goes and he warns the Kenites. Now they, those are some people going back to the book of Judges who had been good to Israel. And uh, so God is going to show them grace and spare them from the battle. And so they go and then the battle happens. And well, what do we read? It was a rout. Israel wins by TKO. It, it was absolutely a rout. If it was a boxing match, it would have been stopped in the first round. God gave Israel this, this huge victory and it was widespread. It was not over just a little tract of land. It was over a vast territory. And so things seemed to be going so well for King Saul. But things change in verse 8 because it's there we see that Saul's obedience was not in full. It wasn't complete. Yeah. He went nine steps of the way but did not go the tenth step. It was partial obedience. And today, beloved, what we see in 1 Samuel 15 is that partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is not good enough in the sight of God who demands perfect righteousness. Partial obedience is sin. You know... I like this illustration so much I've probably used it in, in, in with you guys before. But one of my favorite movies growing up was The Karate Kid, 1984. In fact, it's still one of my favorite movies. Uh, but uh, it's about this outcast teenager named Daniel, and he moves to California. And he starts getting beat up by these teenagers, this gang of, of guys who just happen to be karate students. And so he keeps getting beat up, and eventually he gets befriended by this guy, this older guy from Okinawa named Mr. Miyagi. Okay? And eventually Mr. Miyagi says, okay, I will teach you karate so that you can at least defend yourself. But here's what, before I do this, you've got to agree to something. He says, karate's like walking down the street. You walk down one side of the street, you're okay. You walk down the other side of the street, you're okay. But if you walk in the middle of the street sooner or later, squash, just like grape. Yeah, it's it's humorous, but it's one of those things you remember. And his point is well taken for us. Because you cannot commit yourself to halfway learning karate. You know, Daniel couldn't choose which of Mr. Miyagi's instructions he was going to uh, follow and which ones he wasn't. If he was going to do it this middle way, it was going to result in disaster. But sadly, that's how so many who professed Jesus Christ, approached God. And that's how King Saul approached God here. His approach was like walking down the middle of the street, and as it relates to his favor before God, he ended up eventually getting squashed, just like a grape. You know, um, Saul, we see, captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Paul... Ah, wow. Saul spared... Let me get a sip of water. Saul spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and was not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So Saul obeyed God, but only so far. Saul obeyed God, but not to the end. He... First, he kept Agag alive. And though Agag is only one man, he's the king, which makes Saul's disobedience... I mean, why don't you just put it on a billboard? Why don't you just buy commercials that say, I'm only going to obey you so far? He keeps the king of uh, the Amalekites alive. It's flagrant. 
And it's so significant that the writer mentions it twice. He captured Agag alive. He spared Agag. This was no small rebellion against the Lord, his God, before a holy God. And you know why? Because there are no small rebellions against a holy God. There are no small rebellions. Joining Saul in rebellion was the army. They were supposed to destroy all Agag had. They only destroyed what they didn't want to keep. Gaining riches to them was more important than gaining favor with God. They might as well have said, Look, God, we're going to obey you when it doesn't keep us from getting ours. We're going to obey you in these areas that aren't going to impact our lives going forward. God, we're going to obey you when it doesn't affect our bank accounts. We're going to you know, notice they kept the best of the animals alive. We're going to obey you in the areas that don't cost us anything. You're the Lord and we'll obey you. But only so much. And, and tragically, that's how without even thinking about it, we often approach God. Willing to act like Christians until it costs us something or until it deprives us of something we want. We'll obey until it means we don't get all we can out of this world. And of course, their actions didn't go unnoticed. Saul, uh, uh, God said to Samuel, I regret, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not carried out my commands. That word for regret in the original Hebrew carries the connotation of God feeling emotional pain over the choices Saul made. This, you know, it's the sort of, of, of sense we get when Paul writes that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because our sin, even though you know, if we've been saved by Jesus Christ, we've been saved by Jesus Christ, and, and, and nothing can separate us from the law of God, from the love of God. But sin brings God pain here. Because God is not some impersonal force. God is not just you know, the man upstairs. He is not just the, the wind blowing that that has no no feeling god is a personal being and we are made in god's image we feel pain when we're wrong we we feel pain when we're hurt and that's because there's a real sense in which god is pained when he is wronged in saul's actions they may have been acceptable to the people around him you know his army certainly approved but saul's partial obedience was in reality rebellion It was vile disobedience. And in practice, they were all rejecting God as their true king all over again. You know, that's what had happened when when in 1 Samuel 8, when they'd asked for a king in the first place, God said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as king. And so here they're doing it all over again. And, you know, if God isn't the Lord of all, He's not really the Lord of anything. And so he was pained. And if you notice, Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel was also pained. It hurts the people of God to see others sin. At least it should. Samuel was distressed and cried out all night. I wonder, when is the last time someone else's sin brought you to cry out all night to the Lord? When is the last time uh, 
you you were compelled to rise early the next morning to go meet with the person. We see Samuel went to meet Saul and had to be told where he was, which ended up being at Carmel, where what do we see at Carmel? Saul had set up a monument for himself. For himself. And, and if that's not a reflection of what Saul's heart was like, I don't know what is. You know, Saul had been a, a nobody. In fact, Samuel said, verse 17, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? Saul had been brought from nothing, from the tribe of Benjamin, and been made king over Israel by God. But how easy we forget from where we have been brought by God. Saul honored himself for the victory after he had been told beforehand that God's going to give him the victory. He's given himself credit for something God said before it even started, I'm going to do this. It was God's word to Moses he was fulfilling. Um, So Samuel finds Saul, and as people who partially obey normally do, he puts on his godly hat and he says... Blessed are you of the Lord. I have obeyed. I have carried out the command of the Lord. He's, he's the Sunday Christian. Saul, you know, Saul had some nerve. He, he, he was quick to brag to Samuel about the little he did right. He was quick to tell Samuel he had done what the Lord commanded. It was really a pathetic attempt to try to cover up his sin. You know, the way we sometimes make sorry attempts to cover up our own sin. We try to make it appear as though we're submitting to God when really we know we're not. And Samuel knew better. He he immediately makes reference to the, you know you can picture him putting cupping his ears. What's that I hear? The the bleeding of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen. I hear animals that aren't supposed to be alive. Saul. So did Saul confess? No. Instead, he tries to cover it up. Now he tries to justify his disobedience. We took the best that they had. Why? So we could sacrifice them to the Lord. Oh, he's going to be holy in his disobedience. Think about what Saul's doing here. He's trying to justify his rebellion by claiming he was motivated to rebel as an act of worship. How despicable is this? But lest we think we're any better, have you ever told a half-truth to a believer to make yourself appear more obedient to God than you really were? I know I can't say no to that. Saul had sinned, and he added to his sin by covering it up. He tried to justify his sin And everything he's doing is in the guise of supposedly obeying God. And again, Samuel knew better. And so he reminded Saul of where he came from. You were little. God made you big. God sent you on a mission. You didn't obey it. Why didn't you obey it? And now for the third time, Saul doesn't confess. He says, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. You're the king of the people, Saul. You allowed this to happen. Now you're trying to throw your people under the bus. He wouldn't admit it. It's like Eve saying, 
you know, it's like Adam saying, it was the woman you gave me. And then Eve saying, no, it was, it was the serpent. Which just shows that the times change, but things stay the same. Sin stays the same. We try to place, uh, uh, pass the blame, pass the buck. Saul thought he was partially obeying God and that would be good enough. He, he thought he could appease Samuel by claiming they were going to, to sacrifice the choice of sheep and oxen to the Lord, which let's, we don't have to really read through the lines to know that wasn't their intention. Note also that he says, verse 21, they're going to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel's God. He doesn't say, the Lord our God. He doesn't say, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord my God. Rather that be intentional, rather that be some what we call a, a Freudian slip these days in the 20, 21st century. Saul didn't call the Lord his God. It was as if he, in his language, was seeding the fact that he's not honoring God as God. So once again, Samuel responds, look again at verse 22. If you want two verses to memorize out of this passage, 22 and 23 are it. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. God doesn't delight in sacrifices, Saul, as much as He delights in you doing what He says. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. Saul, anyone can look religious. Saul, anyone can do church stuff. Anyone can, 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 can make a sacrifice. Anyone can serve on a committee. Any, but you know, obeying me, Saul, is not just about looking the part. It's not a substitute for obedience. Anyone can go through the motions. Not just anyone can or will obey him. Saul equated, or Samuel did, he equated what Saul did with divination. That's seeking spirits to, 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 to determine knowledge and things like that. Maybe go into that another time. Uh, he equates it with divination and idolatry, which were two capital crimes. You know, two things they put you to death for in Israel. That's what you've done, Saul. It's just unbelievably sad. Because Saul had this chance to fulfill the Word of God. He didn't. But in the end, he would fulfill the Word of God in a different way. God told Israel how a king would, in the course of time, fail them. He told them this in Deuteronomy 18. But he gave Israel what they wanted, a king just like all the other nations, to one day show them to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. It sounds like someone else who eventually did follow God. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, Psalm 40, verse 6. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, Psalm 51, 17. Those are the types of things the king of Israel should say. Those are the types of things Saul did not say. But those are the things the one who came after him, David, a man after God's own heart, 
would say. But not Saul. You know, he, he admits finally that he sinned. But even, even this admission of sin, it, it comes across as very casual, given the gravity of what he's done. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Yeah, I sinned. Yeah, I, I listened to the people. Pardon me for that. Hey, let's go worship. You know, Saul's like a politician here. Wanting to get through the scandal as quickly as possible so he or she can get back down to business. At least that's how politicians usually do it. Get the apology out of the way as quickly as possible so that you can, don't have to mention it again and you can keep doing your thing. Saul's like we are a lot of the times, glossing over sin in our own homes, in our families, with our friends, anywhere, and moving on to worship God as if it's no big deal. But it was a big deal. Sin is always a big deal to a holy God, and it was a big deal to those who were going to honor God and those who pursue holiness. And it was a big deal to Samuel. I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Samuel sees through Saul's so-called admission. Even Saul's supposed repentance is sinful. So Saul's opportunity to bring glory to God through obedient faith is turned into this disastrous act of partial disobedience and he's not going to get away with it. God, as God always has, does, and will. God has the last word. You have rejected the word of the Lord, says Samuel. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul would not get away with this. And neither will we either. Okay? Neither will we. If you are pretending to obey God, you should be afraid. Because God will get the last word, and the last word's going to sound something like what Jesus says in Matthew 7 Depart from me. I never knew you. Saul's sin would cost him dearly, it would cost him his kingdom. And when he hears those words, it's as if the gravity of the situation finally seems to be getting through. He became desperate. Samuel turns to go. Saul seizes his robe, and it tears. Now, in the law of Moses, there were tassels that were required to be on the robes, and those were, in part, symbolic reminders of the Lord's commands. So when Saul reaches out to grab Samuel's robe and it tears, it's likely that some of that tears. And the irony is not lost on Samuel because this is very symbolic of the way Saul has breached God's word. And so Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So Saul, you, you'll remain king for a time, but your kingdom's not going to last forever. And that was made certain by what happened right here. And we know that it wasn't Saul's son Jonathan who became king. It was David of the tribe of of Judah. Make no mistake about it, beloved. God's purposes will be accomplished, even if it's not through us. 
You know, God is God and He's always been God. He's always going to be God. He always accomplishes His good pleasure. He will be glorified. But we don't want God to set us aside. You know, we, we don't want to be those whom God judges. We want to be those God uses in a good way for His glory. Because God doesn't lie. God doesn't change His mind. His Word stands forever. Saul was accountable. All men are accountable. You are accountable. I am accountable. We are accountable. Samuel knew Saul's time would come to an end, but not, but not yet. Um, so when Saul asked him again to return and honor him before the people of Israel, this time it's not let's go worship together, it's honor me before the people of Israel. Since he's still king, Saul does that, or Samuel does go with him then. But note that in verse 31, Samuel goes back with Saul, but Saul worships the Lord. And so Samuel's not going to worship the Lord with someone he knows is in rebellion against him. So Saul's going to go do his religious exercise, but Samuel is not going to be a part of that. In fact, we see that he doesn't see him again until the day of his death. But there's one more thing to do. Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, Samuel said. Agag, for his part, seems to have thought he had escaped the worst. We see he came cheerfully. Maybe the bitterness of death has passed. He thinks he's avoided what was going to happen to him, what happened to the rest of his people. But God was going to be glorified. His will was going to be done. So Samuel says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. So Saul wouldn't wage haram. He would not utterly destroy evil. Samuel did. And the implication, beloved, is that Saul's partial obedience doomed him. Samuel's zealous obedience glorified God. And the application this morning for us is will we exterminate sin in our own lives? We are not unlike anyone else. We will wrestle with sin until the day we die. So we'll always struggle with the temptation to brush sin under the rug. We'll always wrestle with the temptation to minimize when we don't obey God. We'll always wrestle with the temptation to try to get past things as quickly as possible so that we can go on keeping up appearances. But if we see anything in this passage regarding Samuel and Saul, is that God doesn't want us to miss one thing He tells us to do in His Word. And God wants us to hack the sin in our lives to pieces. We see Jesus say, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, Jesus isn't literally telling you to go home today and grab a fork and perform surgery on yourself. 
the point he makes is clear. You go to great pains, you go to great lengths to not sin because God is holy and he calls you to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 14, 15, 16, Be holy as I am holy. Peter's quoting the Old Testament and he says, Be holy yourselves in all your conduct because it's the Holy One who has called you. And Saul said, I don't care. Me and my men, we're going to keep what we want. We're going to do what we want. And we might say we're obeying you, God, but we're going to do what we want. And it didn't turn out well for him. He died in battle. His son died with him. David became king. And today, we need to know, beloved, that we don't want God to judge us. You know, God does discipline believers. And God does judge eternally all unbelievers. Will we hack sin to pieces? Every time I read this, I am just convicted of my own sin. And I don't know how you can read it and not be yourself. Okay, So I, I, I say that... And I want to close with encouragement because all this is harsh. God's grace is greater than our sin. Amen. God's grace, the hymn goes, God's grace is greater than our sin. Jesus died on the cross to provide for your forgiveness from whatever sins you commit. Jesus died on the cross to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you are in Christ, you're saved from your sins. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are not bound to sin anymore. Stop living in it. You don't have to. Romans 6 tells us this. But pursue holiness. Pursue peace and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 13. Hack sin to pieces. And as hard as that sounds, you can not because of you, but because of the Spirit in you. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, Paul writes, fruit of the Spirit. You can through Christ, if you're in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful passage. And just preaching it again, I'm overwhelmed by how much I can be more like Saul than Samuel here. And so I pray, Father, that you will convict us of our sins. May you compel your people to repent and to take the attitude towards sin that you do. Help us remember, Father, that obeying you nine-tenths of the way is disobeying you. Now, we, Father, we know that we in and of ourselves are not perfect, and we know even in your word that until we see Jesus face to face, we won't be perfect. Not because of anything in you, but because of our own sin, and because we're still in these unredeemed bodies, and we wait for the glory to come. 
but we don't have to sin. You are holy. You call us to be holy. Father, by your grace, may we be more holy. Help me to exterminate the sin in my life. Help your people to exterminate the sin in their lives. Help our church to exterminate the sin in its life. So that as 1 Peter 3.15 and 16 say, we can be ready to make a defense to this world for the hope that is within us with gentleness and reverence and with a good conscience so that they can look at us and say, they live holy lives, they practice what they preach, they serve the Lord, they talk about. Help us, Lord, to be proclaimers of Your grace who don't take advantage of Your grace. By Your grace... May we obey you in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.